our Father and our God. We are grieved beyond words as we ponder the events of the past week. With a mark of 100,000 deaths due to COVID-19 and the grievous death of George Floyd, we're shocked, angry, deeply sorrowful. And our anguish is multiplied as we see the devastating response, the rioting, the burning, the looting, the shooting in the cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and elsewhere around the country. We must speak because it's right to respond. This is not about politics, it's about human life. Human beings created in the image of God who are fellow image bearers. We want and need to respond, but often do not know how or in what way. Lord, we are confused and sometimes conflicted. Our initial tendency, O oh Lord, is often activism to speak, to do, to engage before we prepare our hearts. There's a time and a place for responding, but before we move to the response with the deep grief and heavy sorrow that we experience right now, we have to first pause to lament, to weep and cry as we see the devastating and deadly results of sin. As we utter these prayers of lament in the midst of the suffering and pain, we do so with faith and trust in you and your promises. We seek to lament as our Lord Jesus did. We have failed to reflect the gospel in word and deed by overlooking that the God of justice cares about justice, especially for those in need. We lament that so often in our lives your justifying grace is separated from your sanctifying power and purpose, that the confession of our lips is at times inconsistent with our character and the manner in which we conduct our lives. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive and renew. We lament that we have not loved you supremely with our whole hearts, that we've made good gifts from your ultimate and thus engaged in idolatry. We've not loved others sacrificially, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. To the contrary, we have despised the other. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive and renew. We lament that our faith has been without works. It has not been lived out in care for others in the body of Christ. We have considered others an intrusion into our lives. We also lament that we have lacked compassion toward the poor, blaming them for their state, foregoing a life marked by the compassion we've experienced through Jesus Christ. We also care for justice for ourselves, but we care very little for justice for the oppressed, believing that they get what they deserve. We failed to reflect the gospel in word and deed by overlooking that the God of justice cares about justice, especially for those in need. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive and renew. We lament we have engaged in the world according to the flesh, using the world's means and in a worldly manner. We've considered people the enemy, not the spiritual forces of evil, concluding that our enemy is one who has different colored skin or one who disagrees with us or one who has a different view on a subject or one who is of the other political party. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive and renew. We lament 
that we have been more committed to making ourselves happy and content than dying to self, and that we have desired more to retain the status quo in our churches than to obey the Lord Jesus' command to make disciples. We also lament we have been more committed to people who look like us than we have been to a ministry among all people, which means we often reflect more of the world's ways than we bear witness to the gospel as God's new community being a reflection of the kingdom. Lord, hear our prayer. Forgive and renew. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. You don't know this yet, but this speaks to our passage today and our sermon today. And I marvel at the way God brings these things together. Let's now turn to the reading of Scripture. I'll be reading out of Lamentations 3, 25 through 30. Our sermon today is about patience, waiting upon the Lord, doing the things that he calls us to do, which are somewhat unnatural to the normal way we would lead our lives, but we lead transformed lives. It's almost as if Jeremiah understood that when he wrote Lamentations. I'm going to read from chapter 3, starting with verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence what is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that yet there may be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. It's an incredible passage. It's an incredible time that we're in. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 will be in verses 27 through 36. There's all this talk of the new normal. We're all anxious for things to go back the way they were. And, and I think we need to stop and, and ponder what way was that? What was the old normal? Uh, I think we've had some sobering reminders of what normal was this week because what characterized the old normal was tragedies uh, filled with hate and violence and uh, horrific things that that surrounded the events of the death of George Floyd we've all seen the videos we've we've watched an entire nation maybe an entire world watch a man die on TV it's incredibly moving so I need to ask you, is that the normal that we want to go back to? It, uh, those characteristics that we've seen of, of anger and hate and prejudice and racism and division, is that what we want? Or it, is there hope? Is there hope for a new normal? I got to tell you something. If there's any hope, for a new normal at all, it resides with you and me. It's there in the body of Christ. And the message 
of the gospel. So here's what I want you to remember today. As we stand on the precipice of an historic moment that the world has never seen before. We're all waiting to come out of our houses, get out in the streets, give each other a hug, and shake each other's hands. We all long for that. So as we stand on the verge of realizing that, I want you to know that you and I can shape the new normal. We, together, can shape the new normal. That leads us into our passage today, and let me give you the context. Jesus has revealed himself. He's got incredible teaching. He's been doing supernatural, powerful events. People are getting healed and delivered. And, and the last we heard, there were two kingdoms. There was a kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God brought blessings to us. The kingdom of the world produces woes. And the amazing thing about that is we have the option to choose which of those two kingdoms we want to live in. Now listen carefully. For those of you that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not a choice between eternal damnation and eternal security with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a choice of how we're going to live here. We can walk in the ways of the world and experience the woes of the world, or we can walk in the ways of Christ and experience the blessings of Christ. God's given us the capability to choose those. So that was what we learned in our last passage. Today, we're going to find out how radical that kingdom of God really is. The title of our sermon is, Love Who? Do What? This is part 15 of our series in Luke, God's Love for Everyone. So, after describing these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, Jesus is now going to describe how believers, how people who have confessed their sins and repented and recognized him as Lord and Savior, how they should live in God's kingdom. He tells us what to do in verses 27 through 31, and then he tells us why we should do that in verses 32 through 36. So, again, the previous passage, uh, Jesus talked about those who are poor in spirit, contrasting them with the rich and the, the self-satisfied, the self-determined. And now he speaks to those who hear. He says this, and this is the what portion of the passage. In verse 27, uh, he says, but I say to you. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is that every time we see the word you here, it's plural. He's talking to the people who believe in him. He's talking to all the people who follow him. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to the body of Christ. He says, I say to you all who hear. And now when we hear the word hear uh, in, in the New Testament and well, in the Old Testament as well, it, it means more than just being in the presence of. It means more than our eardrums are vibrating and there's some noise happening around there somewhere. It means hearing with understanding. It means hearing with a deep appreciation for what we're hearing. It means hearing and doing, conforming to what is being heard. So he says, but I say to you, to you who hear, love. Love. That is a, a form of the word agape, which is a godly type of love. 
But here in this syntax, in this context, it means to cherish, to have a deep affection for, to have a warm regard for. Now, I like that. I love loving. I love being loved. I love all the people around me that are close to me, and I pray that they love me too. So, this is kind of a natural thing that Jesus is calling his people to do, is to love. But look at this. Who does he want us to love? Your enemies. He says, do good to those who hate you. And verse 28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. It's a most unusual message. Now listen carefully. This, this is not as much a set of commandments as it is a, a guidebook, a, a list of directions on how to be a disciple maker, how to be an evangelist, how to bring people in the kingdom of God. He said, if, if you're going to do what the church is supposed to do, these are the things that you should be considering. These are the rules for living like your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they're not separate actions. They build upon each other. He says, love, love leads to doing good. Doing good leads to blessing. Blessing leads to praying. For who? For your enemies, for those who hate you, for those who curse you, for those who abuse you. Now listen carefully again. This is not a cue for enduring abuse. It's not, it's not a direction to become a doormat. But it's an encouragement as to how we respond to these things. We don't have to take abuse and tolerate it, but we shouldn't allow it to turn us into abusers. There's a big, thick book from late in the, the 20th century called The Story of Civilization, where Will Durant uh, relates his story about a wise man who uh, was abused by a simple man. And the wise man listened in silence, patiently, taking the abuse. But when the simple man was finished, the wise man asked him, Son, he said, if a man declined to accept a present made to him, to whom would the present belong? The simple man said, well, to him who offered it. My son said the wise man, I decline to accept your abuse. You can just keep it to yourself. It's a life lesson. The wise man knew something that we need to be aware of, that abuse can make him an abuser. Did you hear that? Abuse can make us an abuser. Jesus tells all of us to return abuse with love so that we can be changed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the abuse or the abuser. That can happen. Now the same goes for those who hate us. The same goes for those who curse us. We can choose to be changed by those hateful actions and those nasty words that are said to us or the abuse that is levied upon us or we can be changed by the Holy Spirit. We get to pick those things. 
I don't have to tell you which path is the correct one because if we are changed by the Holy Spirit, conformed to the image of God, influenced and counseled by the presence of the Spirit in our life who's with us all the time, we can find peace. If we are changed by hate and cursing and abuse, all that we'll do is become haters, cursers, and abusers. And there's no peace in that. So Jesus gives us a couple of examples on how we can do the things that he's calling us to do. In verse 29a, he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, this comes from Lamentations 3.30. Uh, I read it a little bit earlier. I'm going to go over it again so you can hear it in this context. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him, that heaviness, that yoke. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. And it goes on to say that we're not supposed to react to those things. The passage in Lamentations has to do with bearing shame, being patient with what the Lord brings as he works in our hearts and in the hearts of the people who are confronting us and as they see a godly attitude rising up. Back in Luke, rather than returning an insult with another insult, rather than getting offended by uh, the offender and turning bitter over the offense, Jesus says that we should we should express humility and not, not hate, not cursing, not abuse. We shouldn't react to that. He'll show us what this looks like when he goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he doesn't seek to protect himself. He doesn't seek to defend himself. He doesn't try to preserve himself. He sacrifices everything for you and me takes the humiliation and the abuse and the hatred and the cursing. He was humble. And he calls us to be humble. Well, how humble does he call us to be? I mean, it only goes so far, doesn't it? We can only be expected to take so much. We find out how humble in verse 29b. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, we have to read this in a first century Palestine context and we're going to understand what it means. Because a typical Jew only had two pieces of clothing. He had the cloak, which was the outer cloak, and he had what some translations would call a shirt or garment uh, or tunic. That was the inner garment. That was it. So the verse here says that if somebody takes your cloak to give him your tunic as well, that leaves you without clothing. Now, in a contemporary setting, some people might find that interesting, but in a first century Palestine setting, that was the epitome of humiliation to be bare in public. Now, there's a promise there that comes in Exodus chapter 22 that, that uh, when we, we give somebody our cloak that they're supposed to bring it back by the end of the day and so 
it's not a promise that, that if you're giving away everything, you're going to get it back, but it is a promise that there is redemption, that there is restoration, that if we humble ourselves right now, that God will restore us, God will redeem us sometime in the future, maybe in glory. It's a beautiful example of being patient while God does what he does in everybody's hearts. He says, give to everyone who begs from you, and in verse 30, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, we have to be careful because we're talking about hard attitudes here. Uh, these are not uh, literal uh, explanations of how we're to conduct ourselves. Uh, a great biblical commentator from the 20th century named Leon Morris says this, if Christians took this one absolutely literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. So Jesus is not saying you've got to give everything away to be holy, but he is trying to engender total reliance upon our Father in heaven and a, a total expression of love and humility towards those who would hurt us, those who would shame us, those who would embarrass us and deprive us of our things. By the way, Elder Sachs wrote an incredible devotion on this week. I recommend that you go back and take a look at it, what it means to turn the other cheek and what it means to, to give uh, without hesitation. So th this idea of humbling ourselves should cause us a moment of introspection. And uh, so let me give you a, a beautiful example of, of how easy it is to hold on to things that are dear to you. Uh, during the darkest days of World War II, uh, Winston Churchill was called to deliver a speech to the parliament in Canada. And uh, they called in a, a young photographer uh, named uh, Yusef Karsh to take this picture. Uh, they were going to bring Churchill in after the speech and, and Karsh was going to take his picture. Karsh had all of his equipment set up and everything and Churchill enters the room, and it becomes apparent to Karsh right away that Churchill did not know that he was going to get his picture taken, and he hated having his picture taken. So Karsh approaches him and says, I'm here to take your official portrait, and Churchill, who has a glass of bourbon in one hand and a cigar in the other hand, shoves his cigar in his mouth, puts the bourbon down, and says, okay, you get one picture. Now, in a moment of absolute brilliance, uh, Karsh sat him in front of the camera. Uh, he got the camera ready and everything. And just before he took the picture, he grabbed the cigar out of Churchill's mouth. And this is the picture that was produced. It became so iconic. It became such an inspiration to the nation that it appeared on the, the cover of Life magazine. But it's also, it's also a human reaction to what happens when somebody tries to take something that we want from us. And the question that you're going to have to answer yourself is what kind of face, what kind of demeanor do you have when somebody takes something that belongs to you? Do we get a mean, scowly face? Are we offended? Are we indignant? Do we say that belongs to us? You know, the typical prayer before we do the offering is everything comes from you, everything belongs to you, Lord. Do we, 
do we really believe that? Well, that's when we're tested, when somebody takes something that belongs to us. Here's what Jesus is trying to teach us. Rather than getting indignant, rather than retaliating, rather than withholding, we're love. We're to love. We're, we're to be patient. We're to give freely, as freely as we have been given. And Christ takes all of this that we've seen so far and brings it to bear on one simple saying in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We see this in a lot of different forms. It's a golden rule. It's on our walls. It's on our napkins. It's embroidered into pillows. And it's probably the greatest single summary statement ever uttered. It says it was to treat others as we would like to be treated. And the implication, if you see it in the context of the other preceding verses, that the implication is that we are to treat others the way we would like to be treated, regardless of the way they treat us. This is totally unconventional. This is totally unnatural. It goes against everything in our nature. We instinctively want to preserve ourselves, to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves. But God is changing our nature. He's making us more like Christ. He's molding us and shaping us into his image. He wants us to be like Christ who sacrificed everything, who refused to preserve himself, who was determined not to protect himself, but to rely on his Father in heaven. Is it, is it even possible for us to live like this? I, I think it is. If we're willing to follow the Holy Spirit, if we're willing to do the things that the scriptures tell us to do, if we're willing to actively pursue being like Christ, Let me give you another example of what it's like to be like Christ. In post-World War Germany, East Germany, the general secretary of the Socialist Party was a guy named Erich Honecker. Uh, he, was, he had dictatorial power in East Berlin from 1971 all the way to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Some called him a dictator. Everybody hated him. Well, when the wall came down, Honecker was left without a home, without any money, everything was confiscated. Uh, he, had, he had no position left over. And a pastor, an evangelical pastor, by the name of Huey Homer, stepped in. Now, Huey was the director of a Christian help center. They gave room and board and food to, to people who were without those those advantages. Uh, they were just north of Berlin. And, and Homer found out about Honecker's situation and thought, well, maybe I should bring him into the center. But then he thought that there were people that were far more needy than Honecker. And he didn't want to give a room to somebody uh, that had been in a position they were in and sacrifice that for some, somebody that needed the room. So he invited him into his home. He brought him into his house. Now, Honecker's wife, Margot, 
was the director of the East German education system for 25 years, which was rabidly anti-Christian. And Homer's, Homer had 10 children, and they were denied any opportunity for higher education by Honecker's wife and the way she ran that system. So Homer is, uh, he's oppressed, he's been opposed, He's been denied. He brings this man and his wife into his house. And all of a sudden, we find Homer caring for and blessing his worst enemy, the most hated man in Germany. It was so unnatural, so unconventional, so supremely sublime. It was so much like Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, and Homer was very clear. By the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the Homers loved their enemies, did good to them, blessed them, prayed them for them, and treated them like they would have wanted to be treated. That's what we're called to do. We're called to express that level of love. We're called to share everything we have, in particular with the people that rise up against us. Why? Why would God call us to do that? It's so contrary to everything that we think is reasonable. Why does God want us to live like this? Why does God want us to live like we belong to a kingdom that is different than the kingdom of, wor of the world, like we belong to the kingdom of God? And so this is our second section of our passage. Verse 32, Christ says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Watch this. It's easy to love those that love you. I love loving the people that love me. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel at peace. There's no sacrifice involved. There's no real work involved. There's really not much witness and testimony because we usually share that. In a strange way, in many cases, not all, but it's kind of like loving yourself. Loving others for what you get out of the relationship. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving people. I, I don't want you to get me wrong. But we, we should, from time to time, ask ourselves why we love the people that we love. It's only natural to love people because of who they are. That's what rises up in our humanness, loving people for who they are. But you see, love, God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We bring nothing to the relationship. We have nothing to give him. Jimmy Carter talked about God not needing anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything we would bring to this relationship. Do we dare love someone who has nothing to give us? Do we dare love the way God loves? Let me repeat. There's nothing wrong with loving people like us. We should do that. But can we love people that are not like us as well? That's the question. Can we love the way God loves? 
Why try to live in God's kingdom the way he calls us to? Because he loves us. He loves us even when we're unlovable. So we, we should try to love others because God loves us even when they are unlovable. It's a sign of gratitude, a sign of appreciation for how God loves us. And then we see in verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. It's the same thing as loving those who love you. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to do good. But it's only, if it's only returning a favor, if it's only, even if it's worse, if, if it's with the expectation that you're going to get some benefit back, some repayment, that's not godly. That's selfish. If the motive is to fulfill yourself, to satisfy yourself, it's not a godly motive. And Jesus points this out. And he points it out because he made the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me when he knew that we were totally incapable of doing anything for, us, for him. He sacrificed for us. And if we're going to try to live in the kingdom of God, we should sacrifice for others. Now, it, I told you a little bit earlier that the what's built upon each other, love, do good, bless, pray. Well, the why's do that as well. And so we see that in, in verse 35a. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And as if these things are not self-explanatory, it's pretty clear. Hard to digest, but pretty clear. Jesus makes it explicitly clear why we are to do these things. Verse 35b. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. Now lest we think that there's things we have to do to be sons, we get involved in the syntax and the tense and everything here. Uh, but we can turn to other parts of Scripture to see this. We are. We are sons of, and daughters of the Most High. And, and we can read this in 1 Corinthians verse six, uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7 that Christ has bought us with a price. He paid for us. We belong to him and he's son of the Most High. We not only belong to him, we're one with him. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. Matthew tells us that our reward is in heaven, that our reward is already there. We don't have to go out and earn these things. They're already there. Jesus is just saying, these are the things that we should be doing if we are sons of the Most High and, and uh, uh, are going to receive our reward in heaven. And then the rest of Scripture says, we are sons and we do have the reward. So we should be doing these things in verse 35c, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Now I want you to listen to this very clear, carefully. Because when we hear it, we start thinking about all those people we consider ungrateful and evil. He's talking about us. He's talking about us. Jesus was kind to us when we were ungrateful and evil. Then we see this. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. 
Again, a great summary statement. Be merciful in our gratitude and our thanks. Be merciful as a way of honoring the mercy that we have received, as a way of trying our very best to be like Christ. So there's our what and our why of living in the kingdom of the world. What do we do? We, we love, we do good, we bless, and we pray for those who are against us. Why do we do it? Because, because that was what was done for us. We've received these things from Christ, and we become vessels and funnels of those things to the people around us. I mentioned earlier that we're at a historic time. We're at the tipping point. What will happen when we go back? Brothers and sisters, we can shape the new normal. It's not going to stop horrors like what happened to George Floyd. But we, you and I, can impact the people around us. We can have an influence on our circle of people, the people that we run into on a day-to-day -day basis. We can strive to do these things. We're not going to be perfect at it all the time. What God wants from us is a desire to do it, a desire to walk it out. The Holy Spirit will take us the rest of the way. But we can have an influence on the people around us. And see, as they see the transformation that we've gone through, they can be transformed as well. And they can have an influence on the people around them. Isn't that what happened with the 12? Isn't that what happened with the apostles as they sent them out? A small group of people, everybody else ran and hid. These people went forward with the gospel. They spoke it boldly. They tried as hard as they could to live it. But if you read the epistles, you find out they weren't always successful. But the Holy Spirit used their hard attitude and their willingness to be like Christ to change the entire world. And the result is you and I end up getting saved 2,500 years later. We can have that impact on the world. Can we love and do good and bless and pray? And, and so even, even as we, we pose that question, it should raise an, a few other questions in our minds and in our hearts that, that are a response to, can we do these things? Can we, can we love? Can we do good? Can we bless? Can we pray? Well, are you thankful are we grateful for what's been done to us? Do we appreciate what God has done? Are we willing to dream big brothers and sisters? Maybe bigger than we ever have dreamed before. It's a huge job. It's an impossible job. And I love the fact that it's impossible. Because if anything is ever to happen, we have to give the credit and the glory to God. And we have to acknowledge the presence and the power of the Spirit in us. With the presence and power of the Spirit in us and to the glory of God, the world can be changed now. And the question is whether or not you want to be part of that. This is our opportunity. We've been talking for a while now about this is our time. What will happen when we go back out into the world? Who will we be? Which kingdom will we be members of? The kingdom of the world 
for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are resident citizens of your kingdom. But we're living in this world, Father. And as we started with the prayer of lament, Lord, forgive us for those times when we've acted like citizens of those wor- this world. We've all done it. We've all dropped our citizenship papers in the kingdom of God from time to time. We thank you, God, that you are faithful, that you are true, that you are reliable, Father, that we can put our trust in you. We thank you that your promises are eternal, Lord, that we don't have to earn our way into heaven, but we pray, Father, by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit that we would walk like members of the kingdom of God. We pray that we would live in a manner worthy of our calling for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.